0: Hello and welcome to Sonographer's Spill the Tea, where we're here to discuss all things ultrasound, particularly safety in sonography, and cap the caseload. We're here to uplift, educate, and foster a community of wellness and realness in ultrasound. And you'll get no shortage of real talk from me, your host, Joanna Hall. Disclaimer, real talk can get explicit at times, so this podcast may not always be suitable for tiny human ears. Now, let's get into this week's Tea in Sonography. Welcome to this week's episode of Sonographers Spill the Tea. We are mid-November, and we are all about that gratitude and feeling all the good things when it comes to being in a season of appreciation and Thanksgiving. And so we have such a treat for everybody's ears today. I'm very excited to have a dear friend of mine join us to share her remarkable, an inspiring story. It is my hope that by the time you guys finish this episode, that you just appreciate everything that you have, that you understand that ultrasound is so much more than what the civilians and other healthcare providers alike know and understand about not just the industry and the profession and the field and the modality, but about the sonographers themselves and what they endure in their field so I want to introduce you guys to Angela she is an amazing inspiring sonographer and I can't wait for you guys to hear her story good morning Angela
1: good morning Joanna dear friend thank you so much for that lovely intro and thank you for having me I'm so happy to be here
0: I'm so happy that you had some time this morning to drink some coffee and have a chat about everything that you have not only endured, but overcome. There's folks that need to hear this. I don't know who needs to hear this episode, but this is for you. We are going to drop some amazing tea this morning. So before we do that, Angela, can you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you work, what you do, spill some tea on Angela.
1: I would be happy to. Thank you. I am a general sonographer who went through the program in Dallas where Joanna and I met. Uh, At at the time, it was called El Centro College, right? I think they've renamed it since then. I
0: refuse to call it its new name, Dallas (laughs) College. Um, It is forever El Centro to us, El Centro alum,
1: (laughs) It totally. It's kind of like Sears Tower here in Chicago. It will never be the Willis Tower to me. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So I, you know, I'm from Chicago. Um, and I went to Dallas as my I was married, and my ex-husband was doing his medical residency out there at UT Southwest. So I was fortunate enough to get into the program there, which is super competitive, as you know. Oh
0: my gosh. But tears competitive.
1: Snats and boogers tears competitive. you got that right. I mean, people would try two or three years in a row. But I basically went through the program. I found my niche. absolutely fell in love with general sonography. And uh, my classmates pretty much knew that I was destined to come home to Chicago when I graduated. So, as part of the El Centro uh, program, we would get to go to the SDMS conference each year. And that year it happened to be in Dallas. Everyone came to me, said, Chicago's here, Chicago's here, they're presenting. (laughs) (laughs) So I I ran, I ran over there and I walked myself right up to them afterwards. And I said, hello, my name is Angela Huang. I'll be graduating in one month. Um, You know, I'm moving home to Chicago and I wanted to see what you had to offer. And sometimes that's all it takes, right? You just have to um, be bold and believe in yourself. So I walked up to them and uh, the manager happened to be there and she gave me her card and she's like, well, you know, we have someone leaving and this timing is perfect. So I'll be in touch. About two months later, I was moving home to Chicago and within a week of that, I was starting my first day here. So, yeah, it was amazing timing. I always say God's timing, you know, it's, it's just perfect. It truly is. And when you follow your prompts, you follow
0: those voices that you feel in your heart, your, your, your head is very loud and can be quite confusing, but that soft voice right here. um, When you follow that rarely will it lead you astray. Um, And you said something that I think was so poignant and prominent. Um, You say you just have to be bold sometimes. And that's part of that prompting, right? When you feel it, it's, do you take that step? Do you open your jaw and let your voice come out and speak? Um, And sometimes that's really all it takes, you know, because if that path is already being laid out for you, you certainly can't walk it if you're not bold enough to put that, you know, take that first step. So great job on taking that first step. I was, I
1: couldn't believe you graduated and you were gone. (laughs) Where are you going? I know, I I just totally like miss having not had the chance to work with any of you guys out of school. Like as I mean, you probably don't know the people listening, but uh, Joanna was a year ahead of me or the class ahead of me. So yeah, we got it. We crossed paths a few times in the lab, but I just always loved her, her energy, her spunk, her spirit. So I'm so happy to be here with her today. So like you said, you know, your voice and you have to believe in yourself and sometimes be bold like that, because I feel like sometimes if you aren't, then who will? Like who will do that for you? So you have to be willing to fight for yourself in a way and that will carry you far in your whole life. And I'll tie back into that when we talk about my journey through um, my cancer diagnosis. But yeah, so I think I've always had that sort of spirit and I get that from my mom, who is a, a warrior as well.
0: And you know what? You do it for yourself, right? You don't want to grow for someone else. You want to do it for you. But you never know who's watching and you never know who's listening and you never know who you are low key inspiring with your boldness. And if we if we don't do those things to to step out outside of our comfort zone, not just for ourselves, but for the person that we may be unknowingly responsible for inspiring and uplifting so that they can use their voice. So it's, it's this beautiful domino effect that can happen when you just put yourself out there and go, that's okay. Um, and then somebody else goes, well, if it's okay for her or for him, I think I can do that, too. I think I can be bold. I think I can go up to the hiring manager that I don't know as a student and be like, hey, by the way, I'm going to be graduating soon. You you want to let me work for you and give me some money so I can go home?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> right? You want some of this? Because <laughs> I want some of that. Right. Absolutely. Well, you brought up
0: something that is bringing us here today, um, and that was your cancer diagnosis. Um, and one thing that I think is so important for people to kind of take away from this is that as we've all been navigating this pandemic and we're all navigating you know, uh, who is good for a vaccine, who's not good for a vaccine, why does it matter? Why do we wear masks? All this extra stuff that is really heavy and we don't want to deal with today and we're not going to, um, but it's really important Important to understand that healthcare providers are going through their own things as well while we're trying to show up to for our calling to take care of another person. We're going through some things too. Mm -hmm. And so, and these things can make us immunocompromised. And we still show up to take care of our patients. Who are mostly immunocompromised themselves. And there is no social distance in sonography. I'm sorry, it does not exist. Um, and we can be with our patients anywhere from five minutes for a fast scan to 120 minutes when we're doing a bilateral upper and lower extremity for a patient who's been on bed rest in the ICU. So, <laughs> it's um it, it's really remarkable to be able to not only be a sonographer to not only be a powerful and passionate woman but to be a powerful passionate female healthcare provider who mm-hmm. is now navigating a very serious diagnosis um that you have just been so inspiring to watch to me i'm gonna, i'm going to I'm an emotional human being, so I could cry over anything. Um, so I'm going to not do that today and I'm going to hold my face in, but tell us a little bit about how your diagnosis affects your patient care interactions, uh, especially in this in this time of COVID.
1: Absolutely. And I think that it's important to note the type of cancer that I have is it's stomach and esophageal junction cancer. Um, it's a cancer that is extremely rare. It's not the hereditary type as far as we know. Um, there, there are two types. There are the, there's the type that affects typically older men that sort of evolves out of um, a gastritic condition or inflammatory you know, um, stomach lining that then becomes dysplasia, metaplasia, that type of thing. Uh, But then there's also a larger subset of women under 50 who are being diagnosed. And it is the type called Linitis Plastica, which starts in the walls of the stomach and then um, starts to grow outward through the muscular layer. And then if not caught in time, which unfortunately most of these aren't, they begin to evade the, stomach lining, and then you, you'll pick up pieces of it, either in the peritoneal washings or, um, on the lining of the viscera. So the peritoneal lining you'll pick up. So that in that case, that's peritoneal carcinomatosis, which buys you, um, a stage four diagnosis. Right. how, How did you come across your diagnosis? It was a little bit of a challenge. I think uh, I feel fortunate in a sense that it didn't take too long, relatively speaking, but it still could have been caught a couple of months earlier. And could that have made the difference? Most likely, because when I was diagnosed, I was diagnosed as stage four, but barely. So technically stage four A, in the sense that I only had some positive cells in my peritoneal washing and a few spots um, next to the liver ligament and uh by the diaphragm and now a couple of tiny spots on the spleen but but i was starting to have problems eating um let me see what year is this 2021 (laughs) (laughs) you know that is
0: not even an uncommon question because it feels like you know first of all 2020 fell into a black hole i'm not sure where it is but i'll say last year but like last year and i'm literally talking about 2019
1: Absolutely. It just, it just went into a vapor, girl. It went into a vapor. Uh, so yeah, the summer of 2020, I started having these issues, like late summer, where I was like, oh, I can't eat as much as I could. Like, I'll eat a Jimmy John's. I'll get halfway through. Or, you know, you start to feel that the food is just sort of sitting there. in okay. um, you know, it's not going down. And then over the course of the summer, it would stay a little bit higher up. And to be honest, and I don't know if this is the female thing or what, but to be honest, I wasn't mad about it at first because I was losing weight and I had porked out like the year before. I mean, I had gained <laughs> so much weight. I was just living my best life. It was like sang- sangria summer, you know? I was just having the time of my life. I and I mean, I'm pretty sure, I'm 5'2 and I had gotten up to about 160 and my normal's 120. So, you know, in terms of causation, I'm sure that played a part in the whole disease process, but I digress. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I, you know, I wasn't mad about it at first. I was like, oh, you know, these jeans are fitting. Like, okay, well, if I get down to a certain point or if it gets really bad, then I'll go see my doctor. And I knew I was due for my annual in October. So I was like, let's get through the summer and see where we're at. So by the time that came, I was down to about 140. And I thought, oh, I should mention it to my PCP. When I did her face, like the blood ran cold. She's like, you're having trouble eating. You've lost, you know, twenty five pounds. You know all these things, and she referred me to a GI. So I went to see a GI here, uh, not at my hospital, at at the hospital where I was being treated at the time, which is also it's a famous hospital. But I went there for um, an endoscopy, and the idea was, you know, I was so young, it has to be GERD. They kept telling me, you know, it's GERD. I'm sure it's GERD, and they prescribed medication. I'm like, it's not GERD. I know my body. I don't have GERD. And that goes back to, you know, being able to speak for yourself, be your authentic self. And I knew that about myself. I don't have GERD. And then they were like, well, it could have been silent GERD. (laughs) Silent GERD that was causing, you know, maybe this stricture in your esophagus, a narrowing. And that's why. So they had me do like these manometry tests where they stick tubes down your throat, like where you're gagging at the same time. All kinds of fun stuff. So I did manometry testing. I did swallow studies. They did see on the swallow x-ray, uh, a very narrow spot in the distal esophagus, sort of just above the GE junction. Okay. So that's why they said, we'll do an endoscopy with the GI and we'll go in with a scope and we'll dilate it. I researched that seemed benign enough. I thought, oh, this is fixable. This is okay. Yeah, I'm on board. Let's do it. So after the um, first one, she said, I really wasn't able to dilate much. Girl, you're a soft. well, she didn't say girl, but she's like, your esophagus is, is um, six millimeters at that spot. And that is the size of, I believe I looked at a chart at the time and it was like the size of a, a one week old. So they had to downsize to a pediatric scope. I know I'm like, well, no wonder I can't eat. So she had me um, take, she told me to take medicine for GERD and then come back for a second treatment. And you know, I didn't take that medicine because I know I didn't have GERD. But I came back for a second treatment. And at that time, she says, you know, I really I'm I'm kind of stumped. I'm not able to get this um, dilated. And you would think by now we could at least make some progress. So they said, let's do um, let's set you up with another GI. And this time, let's go in with a scope and use ultrasound. How ironic, right? Mm -hmm. So at that point, um, right after I woke up in uh, post-op, he was there. And he said to me, you know, it looks like Linitis Plastica. And I didn't know what that was. I said, well, what what do you mean? He said, he goes, I took biopsies um, in the walls because I was able to see in there. Because prior to that, during those two dilation attempts, she took biopsies all through my esophagus, all through my stomach. And everything was benign, absolutely normal. And I was grateful but he said he was able with the ultrasound and only with the ultrasound to see inside the walls. And he knew by looking that it it was linitis plastica, but we would wait for the pathology. And sure enough, it came back. Um, it came back as diffuse type adenocarcinoma of the um, stomach wow. and GE junction. And how so did, how
0: did you feel? I don't mean to interrupt you it's before the, the thought leaves my head. How did you feel that it was ultrasound? That wound up leading you to your diagnosis when you have all of these other um, ways that you can interrogate the body and, and try to diagnose for treatment and you're getting benign, 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 and, and it's ultrasound and you're a sonographer and you, you know how valuable it is. And you also know its limitations. How did that make you feel that that was what led you to your diagnosis?
1: I immediately thought, it figures. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought, too. (laughs) Yeah, I thought, you know, it figures. I mean, and honestly, I felt an enormous sense of pride in what we do. And my first thought was, we need to start harnessing ultrasound for more things. And hopefully in the future, we will. Um, And we can. You know, we always... Are taught, we can't see through gas, we can't We can't really interrogate the intestines too well, that type of thing. I'm here to tell you that we can, because as of that moment, I started um, monitoring myself at regular intervals. And I was able to, in real time, watch the progression of my stomach wall shrink throughout my chemo sessions. I was able to uh, monitor the adjacent area next to the esophagus, which was causing that extrinsic compression, um, measuring, getting real-time data. And It was just invaluable. And so I was just humbled again to be a part of the industry and just so proud.
0: Right. And And then
1: But, you know, yeah, well, that's something that I advocate for
0: really, really heavy when it comes to, you know, being able to monitor ourselves when it comes to our injuries, not to kind of just veer off for a quick minute. But we have the power as sonographers to monitor our bodies. And no, I'm not condoning that anybody go and start sticking a probe on you and scanning yourself all over, even though we know the truth of the matter is we be scanning ourselves because we're you know, we're ridiculous, and we have way more information in our
1: head than anybody should. Absolutely, disclaimer: we yeah. are not kidding that you go to use your institution's resources. Right. We are- theoretically here (laughs) make sure y'all get an order okay get the order that's what we need to do
0: um (laughs) but at the end of the day we have the power to monitor ourselves so when i think about our injuries and the shoulder and in the body i am just not quite sure why that's not something sonographers have to do you know when not to ourselves but trained. (laughs) in musculoskeletal in some capacity, so that when you're out of school, there's a baseline on what your shoulder and your body looks like, maybe the year after that, and to really monitor and have that documentation of what the progression looks like. Um, so how amazing is it that you were able to see that in a space where you're told that that's a limitation? Wow. Yes. Yeah, that absolutely. Speaks to your skill too. you go, girl, I ain't even mad at you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so how do you think that that diagnosis of um, monitoring and, and seeing that progression of your cancer, how did that affect your career in sonography, this personal um, journey that you have been so gracious to share with us? How has it affected your career?
1: Oh, just about in every way possible. I mean, once you get this type of diagnosis that has with it a less than 30% chance of survival at the five-year mark and an overall survival rating of 2% at my stage, Um yeah. Sorry. I get a little emotional. Yeah. You
0: go, you go kill me girl. Oh my, oh my God. The worst fucking choice of words ever. I am so yeah. sorry.
1: Oh no, I didn't even, oh no, believe me. I have a dark sense of humor. That's how I get through this. I talk my, I love, <laughs> I will come back and haunt you. <laughs> yeah. Not a problem girl.
0: When my son passed away, let me tell you, I developed the most morbid sense of humor. It was like, It was really uncomfortable chatting with me because I would say some really dark shit and people be like, um, if I could disappear right
1: now, I sure would. (laughs) Totally. It makes them uncomfortable, but you know what? It gets us through and hopefully they are understanding. And yeah, I, I just, I think that whatever can get us through without hurting anyone else. Right. Yeah. No. So I think, you know, in that, in putting it in that perspective, you know, it really has, um given me a major perspective shift towards my patients, because whereas before I always feel like I've always felt like an empathetic person. And I think to some degree, I hope we all are in that go into the medical field. However, being on both sides of the table, so to speak, and I assist with so many biopsies and we do so many, um, Oh, we do so many, um, like for instance, liver biopsies, where we have placed fiducial markers in tumors, and we do a lot of clinical trials at my site, so they would use those fiducial markers for targeted therapies. And then seeing these patients come back, where we scan and we monitor the size of the tumors for shrinkage... um, I can just absolutely share in their elation as a patient, but I can also share in the terror and be there to hold their hands um, during these procedures because you you do get them when they're fresh, when they first got their diagnosis. Um, one thing I will say that almost every patient with advanced stage cancer tells me is that they are inspired and they leave our suite with hope, seeing that I'm there and doing it and have stage four cancer. Um, I haven't taken time off from work except for the day that I would get my intravenous chemo. And then the following day, uh, no, the following day I still worked because you're hyped up on steroids from your treatment, but then you kind of go through a little bit of a crash. So I would take like with chemo on Friday. Um, and I'd come back to work on Tuesday. So, uh, the patient's, You know, and I have a a deeper connection. I can relate on a much um, more meaningful level, I feel like. And I help them to know that they are not some sort of a, a freak in that moment. You know, like we're, we both have cancer. We're both in this room. I'm here. You can do this too.
0: I love that. I can't imagine how many lives you have impacted just by providing hope you know, and providing inspiration because I mean, to, to sit there and I've never had that diagnosis, but I've had moments in, in healthcare as a patient where you just feel hopeless and helpless. And when you're in that space is very hard to organically claw your way out of it, because it's very heavy and it's dark. You can't see, Um, So to have someone like you be a light, be a beacon of hope, aside from the actual scanning and the part of you that's the healthcare provider and help them in their treatment or diagnosis, um, as a person, as as an individual who is showing up and showing you proof that there is life after diagnosis, I cannot even imagine how much more of an impact you have had on your patients' lives. And and I'm sure that you have saved those lives Um, because medicine is only going to get you so far. You, you, You need to be able to feel, you know, hopeful, optimistic, strong. I got this. And sometimes you can't always see that in the reflection in the mirror. So to see it when they look at you, I I can't even imagine
1: I. I... Thank you. Thank you. That that was beautifully stated. And I really hope that I can be that, that partner for them, that ally and be that beacon like you speak of. And I want them to know, and I can't tell you how many times I've just held their hand and we've literally cried. And the team, the cytopathologists, the radiologists will just stand there and give us a moment because it's deep, it's heavy. And that's really at the end of the day, why we all come to work. We want to be there to provide care. And I think it's important to Provide mental as well as the physical care for patients, and it's not only me; it's something that um anyone can do. And I I would implore those who are comfortable sharing to just try to open up a little to your patients if you if you are on the fence about doing that, because like you said, it really does um, empower them to know they're not alone in that room in that moment.
0: I love that, and you know that that thought process going along those lines is what put me back um scanning OB after I lost Lincoln um in that 32 week mark. Because I'm I'm I know you were in the class behind me. So I'm I'm not quite sure how much you guys knew about what I was going through while I was in the program. I'm sure everybody knew, right? Ultrasound is smaller, but I know your business. Um, well we
1: knew that it had happened and we knew that um what I think I just knew that you you scanned yourself um and saw. And I don't really know much else, but I know we, we all mourned with you without wanting to be, I mean, I remember I kissed your forehead when you came back in the lab and I broke down in tears and I thought, Oh, how stupid of me, because it probably took all the strength you had to come back in there. And here I am, you know, you came in with your whole class. They were surrounding you. You walked in and um, that was beautiful. But I thought, wow, why did I, why did I do that? She probably just doesn't want to think about it
0: because you were prompted And that meant everything to me. I've never forgotten that. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up because I've never forgotten that. Um, I needed every ounce, every just every muster of support that I was able to get Um, and to get that transducer back into my hand and scan another baby. Um, you know, when I was a student, that was one of the things I would ask sonographers is what's what was the hardest part, uh, you know, of being a sonographer? What's the worst thing you've ever seen that just impacts you? And almost unanimously, almost not all of them was finding a third trimester device. Um, oh. So to find my own as the first one, oh my Lord. So what that had enabled me to do was number one, be brave enough to go ahead and, and scan OB again, go for my boards, which I was prolonging. Like I didn't want to take my OB boards. I finally got the bravery to start studying for it. Girl, the very first question on my OB bo- board was what's a Spaulding sign?
1: Oh, I can't imagine. I'm
0: like, are you fucking kidding me?
1: Uh, like, can I just get a break in the universe right now?
0: Can I just get a break? But you know what? Okay. The universe is going to prep you for what it has in store for you. So, amen. Just, just go for it, <laughs> amen. Um, but now, what it did was it made me an, a better healthcare provider because when I'm scanning now, I I know how personal it is to suffer those losses, and I will sit there and I will hold my patient's hand and I will let them know that you are not just in the hands of a sonographer but you're in the you're under the transducer of a sonographer who's a bereaved parent all right yeah. i am here to to walk this part of your journey with you you know whether that's you know just us sitting here and praying for a minute you know and i'll i'll grab their hands and they'll just i don't know what they feel if they feel me or if i feel them or if we're just exchanging that energy but in those moments where there's you know that the mm-hmm. road ahead of them is grief, is pain, is, is all the things that go along with being a bereaved parent, but there's also tremendous healing and hope in that when yes. you can hold on to that hand. And even now in a time of COVID, man, I tell you, it took a little while to go, you know what? I'm going to hug you anyway. I'm gonna hold you right. anyway, in this moment, I'm not worried about the Roro. I want you to know that you are not alone and that this is survivable and that you can actually take this and thrive from it. But in that that moment, we just we pray Um, and there's so much healing going in it. And I've, I've had doctors come to me after I release my patients and they're like, I don't know what you said. I don't know what happened. But when our patients who have had a loss come out of your room, they they don't come to us broken they almost come to us prepared right um, and I'm and I'm like, wow, thank you for that feedback because it, it lets me know that I'm doing the right thing and and in that loss, um, there was strength and and being able to pick up that transducer and go you're gonna you're gonna change lives you're gonna save lives um and you're gonna do it with all that god has equipped you with the good the bad the ugly the painful the joyful the elation all of it is what you're gonna give to your patients and they'll receive it
1: Amen. I absolutely believe it. And I sometimes worry that I like testify too much to my patients, but I I usually have a clue, like if they're wearing a cross necklace or sometimes even if not. And I take that chance, you know, um, because it has put me in that position, just like you so beautifully stated And you've got them almost grounded by the time they leave your room, just knowing that you have survived it. You give them hope that whatever they're about to experience, you know, they can survive it. Um, and I think that's beautiful. You're doing, I I really truly think that it's God's work. We are treating our patients, not only physically, but again, mentally and emotionally. It's it's like that whole holistic approach.
0: Absolutely. That's that that triangle of mind, body, and spirit. And they're not always all strong at the same time. Sometimes your spirit can be extremely well endowed. And that's great because my body is failing me and falling apart, you know? And maybe you, you know, mentally, you have like, my mindset is right. I'm going to roar. You know, you feel super strong, but your spirit, you're feeling spiritually crippled, you know, maybe something is going on and you're like, I don't know why God, why are you doing this to me? Do you even exist? And, and those are all natural questions too. You know, I, I'm a very firm believer. So that's not a question I have. Um, as a matter of fact, through tragedy, I've only felt like my relationship, um, with my savior has grown. Um, Amen. But I I think it's incredible when you, when you take all those components, you take the mind, you take the body, you take whatever spiritual aspect that you are, you know, connected with and know that each of them is what's going to give you that pillar of strength, you know, and triangles are extremely strong figures, um, mm-hmm. but, but they do require all three sides to be pushing kind of up against each other for that strength to be there to keep that structure um, sound and strong. And when one of them is not, thank God you got the other ones there to kind of hold off some of that weight. That's
1: beautifully stated. Yeah, absolutely. And the patients often will say that they feel as though, and I'm sure yours do as well, they, they say something like, this whole journey so far has, has been sort of a, a right place at the right time. And they feel that you are part of that journey, that you were placed there, that you were meant to be the one to be there with them. And, you know, and that really, at the end of the day, that's really all that matters. And that's what keeps me coming back to work. No, even during the first four months of my diagnosis, um, you know, I was very fortunate that right after the diagnosis, um, the hospital where I was, And the world-class hospital again but I felt that I was just immediately being offered palliative care and I said hell no I am young (laughs) I am and I was on the phone with the chair of my department and at my appointment I was on the phone with the chair of my department which was uh, is another hospital in town which is a huge teaching hospital and by the time I was done with that appointment where he was offering palliative care my chair had said, you have an appointment Thursday here, and they brought me home. And that is how I look at my workplace. It is my home away from home. I have an amazing team, uh, a work family. You know, I've been under the wing the whole time. They And I experience a lot of healing by going there. Um, and that keeps me coming back every day. Um, Even like I was saying, during the first four months of my treatment, the chemo was intravenous and it was on a clinical trial that we have there. And, um, it was an experimental dosage of the mainstream chemos, but also adding in two additional ones. Um, and so it made it just like a really strong chemo basically. And there were days, Joanne, I won't even lie to you that I literally would walk at a speed of like a turtle, like just one foot shuffling in front of the other, um, but I did it. I, I kept going. I knew that this wasn't the end for me. And I know it isn't. I have a young child who's 11. He's autistic and um, special needs, ADHD, you know, all the things. Uh, his, his disabilities sort of manifest in behavioral ways. Like he's super smart, but, you know, he'll scream out in class like, everybody shut the F up. <laughs> you know, these. Are- I be wanting to do that too, though. I'm not going to lie. He's going to be my spirit animal. <laughs> It's so true. And God bless him. He's just blunt. It just comes out. But yeah, as you can imagine, that's resulted in a few parent teach conferences.
0: <laughs> that's my um, homeschool and-
1: school now. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm so envious of your home school. You're just living the life, Joanna.
0: <laughs> oh my God. God is so good, girl. He, he just, he blesses um, in abundance and is uh, I'm on, I'm just obedient. I have, I've done things my way before um yeah. and sometimes they've worked out great and other times not so much. Um, but when sure. I'm obedient that's where it just, you see magic happen. It's like, yes, you're so good. Thank you for all you do. Keep giving me the strength to do whatever you want me to do. Cause I'll do yeah. it. And you've already, you've endowed me with the skills to be able to get whatever work you have in front
1: of me done. Um, Amen. And it's such a relief to just be able to release all of those problems, that grief, that pain, that everything to him and let, let him just do his thing. I just give it up and I go where I feel pulled to go, you know, and so that's, that's why, um, like, why I, I don't want to stop working. And I, I won't, however, I am. Um, and this is also tying into how he is an amazing provider. Um, I am going to be going to the National Institutes of Health. Um, so along my journey, I did like the four months of intravenous chemo, followed immediately by another trial that we offer for um, patients with in like intraperitoneal, they call it peritoneal carcinomatosis. So any spots, any fluid that you have in the peritoneum, it's a procedure called HIPEC, which is um, a heated intraperitoneal chemotherapy, and it's done in the operating room. Um, And it previously was only offered for patients undergoing gynecological cancers. And that's pretty mainstay in their treatment, but it is um, only in use in clinical trials for gastric cancer patients. Um, And so essentially what it is, is you go into the OR and they they make four incisions in your abdomen and then they go in laparoscopically at first to do a visual assessment of all the areas in your abdomen. And they assign what's called a PCI score, which is a peritoneal carcinomatosis index. And it can range anywhere from my understanding is it can range from like zero up to somewhere in the twenties, maybe even 30. And that's just depending on the disease burden that you have. Um, and in which locations um, there's like nine locations, I think. Anyways, if you're under a six, then you continue to be eligible for these these high pack procedures where they basically have four tubes in your abdomen and they have like a um, sort of like a circuit machine, sort of like you could think of a heart lung machine going next to your body, which just basically instills it bombards your um, peritoneum, your your space with heated chemotherapy and they heat it up to over 100 degrees. Oh, and my it's- God. Yeah, it circulates in your cavity while um, you're manually moved from side to side, like decubed back and forth. Um, and I think these days I've heard that they have some tables that will do that for them. But a lot of the residents we get in our program are like, oh, yeah, when I did my surgery rotation, I was the guy. I was the guy. That oh, the- <laughs> I remember I was doing that. I was going back wow. and forth. I was decubing the them left and right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They were the grunts doing the work. But um, so they do that and then they um, drain it out and stitch you up or whatever. And then um, this trial that I'm in, you can get up to five of them. And so I'm about to have my fifth one. And uh, each time I've gone back, there's been no progression in my PCI score. So the ultimate goal, the ultimate hope is that I am that patient that checks all the boxes that I don't have disease progression, and that I can get to the point where they will consider me for surgery and surgery for me means having my stomach removed and having the distal part of my esophagus removed. And I never knew people could live without a stomach, but you can, you certainly can. They're just going to take the jejunum and hook it directly up to the mid esophagus. And you will just, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, And I am happy to say that I just recently heard from the NIH, the National Institutes of Health. There's a, a predominant surgeon there. And, uh, he's going to have me, they're going to fly me in at the end of November to do pre-ops with the goal of coming back a few weeks later to do the big surgery. However, you won't know, meaning me, I won't know if the surgery was a success until I wake up. And I have had friends who went for it and they weren't able to do the surgery for whatever reason. So you get there and you wake up and you, you, you know, you still have your disease. But I have a good feeling, and I've told my surgeons that all along. I have a good feeling.
0: I do too. I really do. And immediately, the the nerd part of my brain was like, oh, "I wonder what that would look like on ultrasound."
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I'll send you some images of of the stomach with cancer with the I'll send you that and the esophagus too. I have.
0: Yeah, <laughs> if you don't mind sharing it in the group, that I think that's a really amazing teachable moment. Um Absolutely. But I don't. I don't feel heavy for you. I don't feel like you're walking into your doom. I feel like God Mm -hmm. just has this amazing path for you and, and paths that are, that are tough, that are, you know, full of glass and, and rocks and, you know, hot stones. They're made for very specific warriors. They're Mm -hmm. made for people who have Really important work to do that does not just affect that one person, but the kingdom around them. And so I just want to just pray uplifting over you. I want to pray peace over you. I want to pray just powerful healing in his name over you. Father God, we thank you for this moment where we're able to come together in thanksgiving, not just for all the work that you do, but for the work that you have provided us to do. We thank you for competency. We thank you for clarity um, and we thank you for always giving us a way to walk the paths that you have set before us, Uh, whether they're easy or hard, you've provided the way. And when we can't walk them, Father, you carry us through them. So I pray in this moment that you continue to carry Angela, that you continue to uplift her and provide her all of the peace and love to know that she is just in preparation for the next step of her journey, Father, because. She has important work to do, and you have provided a well-endowed soldier warrior to be able to do that work in your name for your kingdom, for all of your children. We pray this peace and healing by the blood of Jesus over Angela, Father, and we thank you for her. In your name only, we
1: pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That was beautiful. I just feel so full of love and light right now. I just can't thank you enough.
0: You're very welcome. It's, It's just my absolute pleasure to sit here with you this morning. I'm going to ask you one more question before I let you go. This is kind of a, a what would you tell yourself back in the day question? So if you were to go back to school and you're in your sonography student, you know, I need to laminate my flashcards so that (laughs) the tears roll off of them easier phase. Spoken only like a true snogger. You know, that's right, girl. Uh, <laughs> what advice would you give yourself?
1: Yeah, that, that's a that's a very good question. Um, I think for me personally, I had a sense of what the medical field was about. I had been a medical secretary early in my teens. I had um, worked in the medical field before, but more on the outpatient side and also with family members and what they were going through. Um, And I think as a sonographer, you really do have a unique uh, perspective. You do spend a lot of time with your patients, as you stated. Um, You can spend up to two hours, you know, on an exam. I just think I would tell myself or any sonography student, you know, prepare yourself. You're going to encounter tragedies like you've never encountered before. Um, You know, I've, I've, scanned children, babies, infants who've been abused already, um, just tiny, tiny babies. And I remember just sitting there staring into her eyes. Um, they, They brought the baby down to me in the department and left the baby with me. So I have this tiny newborn in their little bassinet while I'm doing a spine ultrasound or something. And I'm just standing there staring and praying over them, you know, that they will come out of this. Unharmed, that they won't have a memory of this and that they will be put into loving hands. Um, You're going to scan traumas. We get a lot. I mean, I'm from Chicago. We get a lot of gunshot wounds, unfortunately, at my hospital. Uh, We're located in the South side of Chicago. And, you know, just for whatever reason, we do get a lot of gunshot wounds uh, to the testicles, to the spine. These are patients who are waking up to find out that they're going to be wheelchair ridden for the rest of their lives. Um, you're going to scan children who have cancer, like uh, leukemias, and they've had stem cell transplants. You're going to, you're going to form a relationship. You're going to scan this child over and over serially day after day for uh, VOD, vascular occlusive disease, just to check that they're not clotted. You're going to see their, their families in their worst moments. They're going to be on their knees praying. You're going to leave those rooms and you're going to cry. You're going to break down. And I want to say that, You need to have a good support system in place for yourself. You need to be able to talk to somebody, um, to get these feelings out. Uh, it helps when you have a good work family, but also, you know, you're going to, it's inevitable. You'll bring some of that home with you and you may set something up with your spouse where, Hey, I'm going to need 10 minutes when I get home to just decompress. Let me take a shower first. Let me get back into my, my home mode. Um, so I think that's important to know. But on the other hand, you're going to encounter joy like you've never encountered it before. I mean, you're going to be, like I said before, I mentioned with those fiducial markers and you're scanning for the liver masses and they're, they're gone um, or whatever it is you get to be a part of you're going to see the highest highs and the lowest lows and just take care of yourself along the way. Um, I try to get regular massages, but even when I can't, if you don't have a place near you, a lot of places do facials, they kind of massage shoulders things like that. And I mean, if you're lucky enough to be out there in Dallas, I used to always go to the Park Lane. Uh, They have the Aveda student salon and they do a great job there. But yeah, I just say take care of yourself um, and know that you are so important. I know this is just a constant dialogue in the sonography world. Are you a sonographer? Are you a tech? You know, and we could write a book about that. But I think that you and I are on the same page and some of the others out there that, you know, it's important. I mean, I think it's important. I'm not going to get militant, but I think it's important to introduce, you know, yourself as a sonographer, just teach people what it is, because in some ways we are more mid-level than some of the other modalities, the x-ray techs and things. Um, You're, you are a partner with your radiologist or your OB or your vascular surgeon, whoever you work with, you're a partner because you're their eyes. Um, You know, you're going to learn a ton from them. And I would just say, take what you can from them, but be humble, uh, be be teachable um, and be, be a good colleague and also for your own for your own um, career, what I always did was I was terrified of Doppler when I first started, but, so I chose those every opportunity. I chose those. Go take me to the ICU. Let me scan them on like they're non-responsive. I want to scan them. Um, it makes you better, and your coworkers really like you when you do those hard exams too. Um,
0: and- <laughs> like
1: you want to do the renal Doppler? <laughs> yes, yes,
0: That's- you can. All of the uh, announcement. Hello. And- <laughs> doing all renal dopplers pretty much. Uh, for the foreseeable future until she realizes what she asked to do uh, and then we'll reassess at that time
1: uh, it's pretty it's pretty true like and luckily in my department we don't do native renal dopplers that goes to vascular we have all <laughs> But I love a good transplant kidney. I stayed 45 minutes late last night just so I could do one. They were about to take the guy back to the OR because the MRA didn't uh, show an opacified vein. So they thought it was clotted. So, again, you're really important. They were waiting. The OR was waiting to see what I found, guys. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, And then I think, lastly, I had one more thought, but it eludes me. Um, I'm getting old.
0: <laughs> That's why Basically, I write everything down now, girl. I'm like, oh my gosh. I, it's like, I'll have a thought and I know it's there. And then it's like, oh, there it goes. There it goes. Oh, bye-bye. Uh-huh. Never, never to return. <laughs> sometimes you know it. It does, but sometimes it, it happens. Does.
1: But yeah, I mean, just to know that, that you're very important, take what you can get, you know, just be, be humble and Be grateful. Like, I think that wraps it up, It brings it back around to where you started. And I hope that people take away, you know, whatever your faith, whatever your religion, if you're agnostic, like just ignore the parts where we (laughs) get Mm -hmm. preachy, but basically just um, to take away that no matter where you are in life or what you are um, experiencing in your personal life, to just be thankful for the little things. Like for me, I'm off every Wednesday. Jude gets therapy on Wednesdays, but in my free time while I'm, while he's in school, I go to the Dollar Tree. That's like my therapy. I love to go to the Dollar Tree and I will spend a hundred dollars there and I will just come home and take it all out and photograph it and just like be crazy nerdy about it. And that's, that's what I do for fun. So just, you know, do the things that make you happy
0: Yeah, find some times to kind of break up all that seriousness because You know, there's speaking to what you're saying when it comes to just how important sonographers are, the OR is waiting for your results so that they can, so the surgeon can go forward, you know, with, with his work. That's, that's a huge responsibility. Um, And when it comes to education with what sonographers do, not stenographers, people, we are not (laughs) stenographers. There's not a T anywhere in our credentials. Or work <laughs> are, are,
1: are what like we how do. How does that even make sense? Like when you think about it, do uh, we have stenographers in hospitals? No. <laughs>
0: I, I have no idea. I think people grab a word, they're like, that's what it is, and that's applicable to anything that sounds like that word. Uh, right. But it's not about just scanning babies all day, you know? Um, it's nope. really a very Involved modality, Uh, like you alluded to earlier and and stated, we're more mid level practitioners. Um, We work very closely with the healthcare team for the benefit of the patients. Um, They benefit the most and get the best care um, in a collaborative environment. So when you are working as a sonographer, like you said, be humble, be teachable, um, know that there's no possible way you're going to know everything. Um, yeah. One of my favorite parts as a student would be when I didn't know and I went to the, you know, 20 year in the game veteran sonographer. I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't see it. This kind of looks like, uh, and they come in and they scan, they find it a lot faster than I did. It <laughs> drove me crazy. They put Somehow they put the probe down in the exact right spot. And I'm like, I- <laughs> give me 10 minutes find that like how um, do they do that <laughs> ah, I could do it now better yeah um but they their response is I don't know either and I'm like yes you don't know that means I really didn't have to know so this is great which is also a teachable moment in itself that it's okay to not know sometimes
1: um and that- Wait, for those of us who are, are teaching, you know, I'm the clinical instructor at my site. And um, I always make a point to tell the student like, oh yeah, like I, I haven't been scanning forever. So there's so much I don't know. I'll still go grab a radiologist who's been in the game for a while and I'll have him come in with me. I need extra eyes. So I tell the student, don't ever be afraid to say you you don't know, but what you don't ever want to do is make something up there because you're Right. Because you're too ashamed to say you couldn't find something.
0: Right. Right. Don't don't just even though we get paid to provide the images and the doctors get paid to decide the images, um, you don't want to make up something that's there because you feel like if you don't have the answer or if you're unable to adequately describe what you see, that that somehow makes you incompetent or
1: invaluable. That's just not true. That's just not, part of the game. That's part of the right. We all have days where we don't see it. And, and you know, just being confident again and believing in yourself and um, knowing, I, I can walk back in there and say, well, the CT showed, you know, this basically hemangioma in the dome. I'm not seeing it on ultrasound. And I don't take that as a as an affront against myself. I know I tried my best. I know that um, ultrasound has its limitations. And so for whatever reason, I just couldn't see it. And that's you know, just something. Where you're at.
0: That was something we touched on um, earlier before we started recording. I'm going to bring it back around really quick to tie it off with a bow. Um, you do have to learn how to cross-reference other modalities in sonography. It's something that they usually don't tell you you're going to learn or that you may be responsible for when you're either cross-training maybe on the, you know, on the job or you're in formal mm-hmm. education. Um, that you're not just going to know ultrasound, you're going to have to know like, okay, this is the CT, how can I correlate what they're seeing in a cross section versus what I'm seeing longitudinally, or, or in the three planes that we have to scan and prove our work. So do you think you're just going into ultrasound? Uh-uh.
1: No, you're no. going
0: into all the modalities, you're just That's going okay. to be the expert in ultrasound.
1: That's right. You really are. And you, uh, I don't know how it is if you work in a private practice and in, you know, a standalone ultrasound practice, but, um, for sure in a hospital setting, it's, it's a constant thing when you're checking priors, like I said, you know, in my early days, I'd be like, well, there was no ultrasound prior to compare to the other ones. Um, and I think I've gotten a little better at reading CTs just because my own diagnosis of, of like, you know, as soon as so we're, we're located right next to our CT department. And so I'll literally scan a patient and then I'll, I'll go hop on the table for my own CT and then jump back out, which I'll be doing tomorrow, by the way. Um, and so I'll go in the reading room and we'll, we'll look at my CT real quick together. And so you get a little better and that's honestly a personal goal of mine for 2022. I want to get better at reading other modalities. Cause it, like you said, it's so important to just have that leg up. And I would say for anybody in sonography school, um, Pay attention, like try to try to pick up little bits of that you'll you'll sort of be ahead of the game. Yeah, while you're in your
0: clinicals, if you're in that acute care setting, yes, you want to look at the priors for ultrasound, that's just part of the gig, you have to look at those priors if you're doing due diligence within your scope. Um, Uh But don't be shy to open up those other priors for other modalities, if they are available, you will need it. So while you're sitting there, you know, asking your preceptor, Hey, what's this? Or, you know, how does this compare to this? If there's an MRI or a CT on there, do yourself a solid and open it up. Right. Absolutely. Angela, thank you so much for giving us some time this morning. I can't tell you how humbled and appreciative I am, um, not just for your time, but for you and all that you do for your patients. And in this industry, you've made such an impact. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. And I can say the exact same for you. I mean, all the work that you're doing for the work-related musculoskeletal disorders, uh, you are just putting it out there and making them take notice, and you know who they are. Yeah, they're, <laughs> they're not t- happy with me right now, <laughs> <laughs> and
0: I'm okay with it because you hear me, don't you? Now you know there's there's an issue, and and we're going to continue to discuss it. It's not going away,
1: right? And you've made an impact. My my uh, facility just yesterday looked at that that document that they put out, and um, we're getting we're having it's it's going to be an actionable thing. Like we're actually taking that under um, advisement. And so we're going to be limiting the number of scans and getting stretching in between. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. Stop my heart. You just made my whole day. (laughs) Thank you so much. And, And even feedback like that, it just inspires me to know that I'm doing the right thing. I'm in the right place. Um, yeah. And and I can see those tangible results here and there. Um, but being able to get feedback like that is, is it means more to me than you could know. So thank you so much oh, for, for sharing that. It means a lot. You are so welcome. Absolutely. My darling, I will talk to you again soon. Uh, Let's not take that long to connect again. (laughs) And I hope that you continue to share your story uh, because it is so uplifting and so inspiring. And those days come, which inevitably I'm sure that they will, where you feel the weight of the experience that you're going through. I hope you're able to interject some lightness knowing that You are inspiring so many around you, students who get to learn from your experience, other sonographers and healthcare providers who get to learn from your experience, but the patients who you are providing care that no one
1: else is equipped to provide. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. All in God's will. (laughs) And his timing. Absolutely. Love you, girl. Love you more.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Sonographers Spill the Tea. If you want to continue to get all of the tea in sonography, make sure that you join us on all the social platforms. Go ahead, like, comment, and subscribe to wherever you're listening to this podcast from. And visit us on our website, ultrasafeultrasounds.com, where if you're needing any services in sonography, such as staffing or safety, I'm your girl. I'll see you guys next time on another episode of Sonographers Spill the Tea.